So the title of this message this morning is The Second Decision for Jesus. The Second Decision for Jesus. Perhaps you don't even know what the first decision for Jesus is, or you haven't made it. That doesn't matter. We'll talk about that. But I will be talking about the second decision for Jesus. Let's start off by looking into the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew is the, is the first book in the New Testament, the first gospel. And it is the story of Jesus. And right at the beginning, after we hear about him being born and the circumstances and how he got started, we read that at the beginning of his ministry, he goes out and he tries to find and recruit some guys to be his disciples and followers as a teaching rabbi within the Jewish context. And so in Matthew chapter 4, we find these words where Jesus is walking towards the Sea of Galilee and he finds this man called Simon Peter. So let me read. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And Jesus looked at them and said, come, follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. For me, this is the first decision of following Jesus. Jesus shows up in the life of this man, Simon, called Peter. And for various historical and cultural and probably also religious reasons, immediately as Peter encounters Jesus and Jesus says to him, follow me, Jesus leaves everything behind and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll be one of your disciples. There are a few reasons that perhaps for us are difficult to understand why there is this immediate change within Peter to just leave everything behind and follow Jesus. The first one is that he was introduced to Jesus as Jesus is the Messiah. In the Gospel of John, a parallel chapter, John chapter 1, it actually says that Andrew, that, 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 that leading up to this conversation, another disciple comes to Peter and Andrew and actually tells them, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so if the Messiah shows up, well, what do you do? Well, you, you reorder your life and you say, well, I need, I need the Savior. I need the Messiah. So within the Jewish context, the biggest thing that the whole people of Israel waited for was the Messiah. On a more human level, I think the reason Peter so immediately said, yes, I'll follow you, was because it was such an honor to be chosen by a rabbi to be a disciple. That's where you need to know a little bit about the Jewish context. I told you a little bit about my uh, teachers from high school. In the Jewish context, they had a different system of how they were being taught. And I could go in a long story into that. But to make a long story short, Peter up to this point had never been chosen by a rabbi to be a disciple. He had not made the cut by other rabbis to be invited into this life of followership. 
What Jesus was doing here as a wandering rabbi, as a wandering teacher, was common back then in Israel. That's what teachers of the what the scribes and the teachers of the law did. They they would collect some some disciples. Well, obviously Peter never got chosen. So if a rabbi shows up and says, "Hey, I want you," that's like, "Wow, I'm in," because it elevates your calling. I would say at this point, Peter did not know much about Jesus. He didn't, hadn't studied Jesus, he hadn't had many conversations with Jesus, but he encountered him, he had the question, and he immediately said, yes, I want to do this. I'm in, count me in, I'm leaving everything behind, I'm coming. So he trusted Jesus without knowing Jesus fully. Are you guys with me? With the beginning of the gospel stories. So all the great stories that we l- learn about, that we read about later, they are all stories of the future. At this point, there's no history, and so actually... Peter starts trusting Jesus without knowing Jesus. A step of faith. A courageous step of faith. Do we agree? Well, the last thing that I want to say is that I, I think there was also a kind of a level of excitement for Peter. Like there was a new job description coming up. Like a new job offer. He's been, he's been a fisherman. He's been fishing fish. That was his job. Probably learned from his dad to be a fisherman. And Jesus walks up to the sea and says, hey, in the future, I don't just want you to fish fish. I want you to fish men. So I've got a new job for you. And isn't it nice to be offered a new job? It's like a new calling, a new path, something exciting, some adventure. And yes, it would become quite the adventure. So for all these reasons, I think Peter said, yes, I want to follow you. Yes, I'm in. I'll leave everything behind. I'm with you, Jesus. Let's go. And I've heard many sermons who've kind of made this kind of the most pivotal moment in the life of Peter. And it is an absolute pivotal moment in his life. No question about that. But I would say today, it's only the beginning. We're just getting started. You guys with me? So this is the first decision for Jesus. Jesus rocks up, says, follow me, and Peter needs to make a decision. Do I want this or do I not want this? Am I in or am am I not in? And he's in. Leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. Perhaps some of you are here today and you've never taken that decision and you kind of want me to talk more on this, but let me tell you more about the second decision. And it kind of gives you, a, I think, a little bit of a fuller picture of what this whole journey of faith actually is like. I've had some Christians tell me, like, when they became Christians, like, I had no idea what I'm getting myself into. Which is true. And sometimes it's because preachers don't tell them what they're getting themselves into. Sometimes preachers, you know, tell you all the nice things, why it's so nice to follow Jesus, but they never kind of give you the backstory. Well, I'm going to give you the backstory today so that you can really also, if you haven't made the first decision for Jesus, you can make a qualified first decision even today after the service or during the service. But let me give you the fuller, the fuller story. So now we turn to the last chapter of the Gospels. Last chapter of the Gospels is John 21. 
John 21. So this is all the way at the end of the Jesus stories. Within these four epistles, four, four uh, gospels here, there are all these phenomenal stories that you guys have heard about that uh, where Jesus heals, where Jesus does miracles, where Jesus teaches, and Peter is always by his side, and we probably think that this was a time of three years, so they are living together, they're spending time together, they're eating together, Peter is learning from Jesus, and of course, towards the end of the story, towards the end of the story, we of all know that Jesus has to go to the cross and be crucified. And just surrounding that crucifixion, there's also a Peter story that some of you may have heard where Peter actually denies Jesus. So then it's very interesting that at the cross with the crucifixion, Peter is not around. He, he's kind of left disappointed. His dream in this is the rabbi, this is the Messiah, kind of all, everything collapsed. And all kinds of interesting dynamics on just how within his walk of faith, Peter gets very disappointed. And perhaps some of you are here and you've been walking with Jesus, but you've also hit a point of being perhaps disappointed. I'm taking from the Gospels correctly. It's part of the walk. So Jesus is crucified. Peter's nowhere around. And then... We have the resurrection story in John 20. And then in John 21, we've got this fascinating story. And I don't have the time today to go through the whole story. But let me just begin before we read this here. Let me just tell you that at the beginning of John 21, it's, uh, it says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And then Peter speaks up here, John 21, and says, Hey guys, so Jesus is not around. Peter is there with some of the other disciples. And Peter says to other, the other guys, Hey guys, I'm going fishing. You want to come with me? And since Peter is the leader kind of guy, everyone says, Well, if you're going fishing, we're all going fishing. Now, normally you would say, what's wrong with going fishing? Nothing. They need to eat. Fish is nice. But remember, all the way at the beginning of the gospel stories, Jesus had rocked up at the Sea of Galilee and said, Peter, I'm calling you not to fish for fish anymore. I'm calling you to fish for men. So when we read all these chapters later that Peter says, hey guys, I'm going fishing. He's actually not just going fishing. Do you see that? He's actually walking in another direction. Out of disappointment, out of anxiety, perhaps out of fear. You know, the Romans are there. They're crucifying the Messiah. It's all terrible. So he says, I'm going fishing. And then there's this whole story of where they go fishing. They have a bad night of fishing. No fish being uh, caught. In the early mornings, they, Jesus shows up by the sea, and it's a phenomenal story. Jesus actually helps them to be successful in their fishing, which is like, for me, that's kind of a grace thing that only Jesus can pull out. He even supports them while they're running away and makes them get some fish. So then the story, before this year, the story is that they are, they they. They haven't been successful all night. Jesus calls them to get, you know, it makes them successful in fishing. Then, then they recognize, oh, 
it's Jesus, it's you, it's the Lord. They, they didn't recognize that before. And so they make themselves, they, they go to the, the, the sea and then they see Jesus making breakfast. And I would love to spend the next hour just talking about Jesus making breakfast for us. Because for me, that's just the kind of the mo- one of the most marvelous pictures in the, in the New Testament that, you know, even though they're being disobedient, they're running away, that, you know, Jesus has all these things to do in the world because he's now the Savior, the risen Savior. And what does he do? He fixes breakfast. Some theologians have called that the second work of grace that's happening right here, right now. He accepts him. He invites him to the table. We'll we'll celebrate communion later today where communion is Jesus inviting us to have dinner with him. Well, this is a story, so on, where Jesus invites his disciples to come and eat breakfast. But they they have this communion. But then, and this is now the passage I want to talk to you about. Then Jesus takes Peter, just Peter, by the side and says, Peter, we need a talk. We need to have a conversation here, Peter. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. So at the beginning of the gospel stories, we have Jesus showing up and saying, Peter, follow me. And then in the last chapter of the gospels, we've got Jesus showing up again and said, now, Peter, follow me. And Peter needs to make a brand new decision. Whether he wants to be in or not. Whether this Jesus thing, this Jesus movement is his way of life or it was just a good time in the mid-30s. When Jesus walked up the first time, Jesus was a stranger. At this point here, Jesus is not a stranger anymore. Now Peter knows the teaching. Now, Now Peter knows who Jesus really is at a much deeper level. Perhaps less exciting. The first time was really exciting. Yeah, we're following the rabbi, let's go. This time, a little bit less exciting. Why? Because Jesus had just been crucified by the Roman powers and he's telling him, by the way, Peter, not just I get crucified here. If you follow me, you will be crucified. And back then, crucifixion wasn't just putting a cross necklace around your neck and wearing it in public. Crucifixion was you're literally going to be slaughtered. You're going to be killed in a very, very brutal way. That's the context of saying, hey, Peter, want to follow me? By now, Peter knows what the consequences and dangers are of following Jesus. You may be put to death. 
in the conversation leading up to, to these verses, there's this question where Jesus asks him, Simon Peter, do you love me? And Jesus and, and Peter immediately says, Yes, I do love you. And then Jesus says, and well then you need to go and feed my sheep. And then again Jesus asked him, three times he asked him, Do you really love me, Peter? That's the conversation they have there by the lake. The one on one conversation, do you really love me? And then Jesus kind of says, like, if you love me, well, then I've got a job for you to do. I've got a task for you. The kingdom of God is spreading, and I want you to be in it, and it will cost you everything, that who you are, what you are, your whole career, everything. But you need to serve people. So let me summarize what I'm saying here. The first decision, and that's how some have put it, the first decision was about following Jesus as Savior. The second decision is all about following Jesus as Lord. The first decision is all about, wow, here's the Savior walking up. I want to be saved. That's great. I need that. The second decision is all about, well, he's Lord. He's Lord over this world, and he's actually Lord over your life. Do you want that? The first decision is, Oh, great, I'm getting something out of this here. This is fantastic. Salvation, free grace, forgiveness. I get that. That's so cool. I'm in. I want that. And I've led many people to Christ. Say, wow, that's so great. Like when I stay, understand the gospel, it's so phenomenal what I get. So sign me up. I want to be all in because I get something. Now, the second decision is about, yeah, but there's a cost of discipleship. There's a cost of following Jesus. I don't know if any of you have read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. His entry passages actually talks about this whole dynamic, and he does it by talking about cheap grace and expensive grace, costly grace. The first decision is about what do I get from Jesus? The second decision is about what does Jesus get from me? And then for all theological trained or interested people, we, as theologians, we would say the first decision is about salvation. The second decision is about sanctification. Now that's big words. Big seminars we can talk to, talk about that. But do you guys see the difference in what I'm talking about this morning? And perhaps already in your mind, you're kind of like, okay, that's a theological concept. I've not heard it like that. That's why I prayed for an open mind this morning because I knew what was coming. Some new concepts, some new ideas, some new ways perhaps to look at that. I will tell you now a little bit how this has been playing out in my own life. Because it's one thing to read some nice stories and see some theological concepts. It's a whole different thing to kind of experience what does that actually mean in your own life. So let me just give you a few points just as commentary, as I'm looking at that, as commentary how I see that. The first thing that I want to say when it comes to the second decision for Jesus is that it often comes in and through a crisis. in and through 
a crisis. It often takes a crisis. I've made a decision early on in my teenage years to become a follower of Jesus. It was the most wonderful thing that I'd ever experienced. It was going like from black and white TV to in color. It was exciting. I felt liberated. I was all in. I signed up at church. I was in church on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings. We had Bible studies. Thursday evenings, we had choir rehearsal. I was whenever possible at church, playing the piano, singing in the choir, you know, handing out cards. Because I just thought following Jesus is awesome. As part of my professional career, I decided um, with eight, age 18 to go and study law at Frankfurt University. And I wanted to enter the business world as a business person, as a fully committed Christian who is in business and do business. So I started some businesses in in Germany, um, I ran a catering business. I opened up some shops at Frankfurt Airport. I started buying some real estate, all kinds of things that normally take much longer to develop. But through various circumstances, I could very early on kind of get a good head start in business. But I remember very clearly uh, Andrea and I, we had been, we'd gotten married when we were 20. Now she's stealing someone's baby here. She loves that. She told me before we got to church this morning that probably I will steal a baby and listen to you, listen to your sermon some other time. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So I'm this young guy in business fairly successful with stuff. I had taken in a partner into my business and then I felt through a, it wasn't just a moment, it was kind of a season, season I was entering into that, that something wasn't aligned the way it should be. Back then, I, I, I had, uh, it's actually the same Bible, this, this Bible here. Um, this Bible I, I bought as a teenager in, uh, in the US. And it has a Bible reading plan here in the back, where basically for every day of the, of the week, it, it tells you which chapters of the Bible to read. And uh, it's, a, it's a reading plan. And basically, if you read f like something like four chapters a day, you can get through the entire scriptures in a year. And I was doing that. So I was in business, I was doing law, but I would take every day time to read the scriptures. And I remember, and that's one episode that I remember, I was a member, I'm at a library at uh, the Nationalbibliothek in Frankfurt, and I'm, it's my lunch break, and I'm, and I'm sitting down to read the scriptures. And as I'm reading, I just start crying and crying and I couldn't stop and uh, and the reason was that I just so firmly felt like God had gifted me to be doing stuff being in business I loved that but then on Sundays we would come together and we'd always pray the Lord's Prayer and in the Lord's Prayer we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I so firmly started feeling like 
I'm praying for God's kingdom to come, but I'm working on my own kingdom. And I don't know if some of you perhaps are in business, perhaps some of you have held some of the similar tensions, but for me, this start becoming like a real tension. I'm working, I'm, I'm, I'm powering myself out throughout the whole week. Yes, I'm also involved in church, and yes, I'm a faithful Christian. I'm not running away. I'm, I'm being diligent. I'm in church every Sunday. I'm taking notes. I'm reading my scriptures. So it's not like I'm new to the game. I know what I'm into. But I started sensing like, I'm building my own thing here while God is doing a much bigger thing. And perhaps I need to find a way to get rid of my thing and just be fully working in God's kingdom. Whose kingdom are you building was kind of the question that kick-started me into changing my whole life's path and trajectory as a business guy because I felt Jesus is asking me to be working in his kingdom. I said it often uh, takes a crisis. It was a crisis. It was very difficult. I'd signed some loans. I'd been in business contracts. I had a partner. It was very difficult. But there came this day when I stood in front of my business partner who wasn't a Christian. I basically told him, hey, I can't do this. I can't do this. I feel like God is asking me to be working more in his kingdom. That's only part of my story. I, I don't know, perhaps you've heard some other similar stories of Christians, diligent Christians, who at some point in their life kind of feel like, is this all there is to the Christian life? And perhaps you're even here today and you're like, you've been a Christian for a long time and you're, you've been wrestling with this question. Well, I'm, I am a Christian. I'm going to church. I'm singing the songs. I'm reading my scripture. I, I, I'm kind of doing the right things. I'm, you know, I'm not sitting left and right. I'm, I'm, I'm walking pretty, pretty close or in a moral way. But... Is this all there is for me in my life? Is this all that God wants me to be and do with my life? Or is there perhaps a step further that I need to surrender and commit in a fresh and new way, all new, to be following Jesus with all the stuff that I now know what it means to follow Jesus? The second thing I want to share with you is uh, there's a spiritual battle. Now, I know lots of Christians who talk about spiritual battle like on a weekly basis, like everything is a spiritual battle. Let me tell you this morning here in church, I don't believe that. I don't think everything is a spiritual battle. I think there's a difference between what is a spiritual battle and just normal life. And if you think both are the same, then let me tell you, your theology is messed up. Because if you are in a spiritual battle, you can feel it. It goes to the core of your existence. It, made, it makes you be on your knees for hours and days. It makes you enter into fasting. It makes you travel places you've never been before. It makes you pray, not just for two minutes, not just for five minutes, but for hours, because you're wrestling, you're fighting, and there's a pull between good and bad, between God and the devil, and you're in the middle of it, and you're trying to, to get somehow through that. My whole experience is 
Also, when I look at the gospel stories here with Jesus, I actually only see two times in the gospel stories where Jesus is fighting a real spiritual battle. At the beginning uh, of the book of Matthew, we find Jesus in the desert with the devil. There's the, after the 40-day fast, there's the confrontation, and that's where really Jesus is fighting a battle with the devil. But then once Jesus told the devil to get lost, he actually disappears. He gets lost. Now, towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus faces again in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He again goes through this spiritual battle. Do I want to commit with my will to the will of God or do I not? And he's praying all night. His disciples again are sleeping, not in the spiritual battle. He is all by himself, lonely, all night long, crying, praying, struggling, fighting. And then after that, he gets up and he goes to the cross. So I see two times where Jesus is really fighting a spiritual battle. If you are fighting like on a weekly basis, I want to tell you, you need to conquer your spiritual battle and settle things here with the Lord on whose side you're on. There's this wonderful teaching in Ephesians 6 where it actually talks about a spiritual battle. Uh, by the way, it's not all over the New Testament. That's why I'm saying it's not the daily normal thing of Christians. Ephesians 6, it tells us about the armor that we're supposed to put on and what that looks like, that we're not fighting against flesh and, flesh and blood. And, and, and that's great teaching. I, I really believe that and I can teach on that. But my experience is that normally you don't enter the second decision of Jesus without a crisis or spiritual battle. So perhaps for some of you today, you're on a beautiful island on vacation. You're not like, wow, this doesn't feel like battle time at the moment. It feels like vacation. I understand that. And perhaps the sermon today is not for today, but it's for the time next time you're facing a crucial situation and you're feeling led by the Spirit to actually make a new decision for Christ, like all new, all fresh start, and you have to enter a kind of spiritual battle. Number three, the second decision for Jesus is not just about inner change, but actually often leads to a dramatic, drastic outer change. Let me tell you the story of a, of a good friend of mine. His name is Daryl. He was with us a couple of weeks ago uh, here on the island. He's from the United States. Uh, he's a wonderful Christian man. He's been a Christian basically all his life. He works uh, for a, a foundation, family foundation, where they support Christian ministries around the world. And he's been traveling around the world for many years, supporting orphanages, supporting schools, supporting churches. His whole life looks like ministry, even though he's also a full-on business guy. But, but he's a fully committed guy who really wants to see the kingdom come. Part of his life's story is that he wanted to take one of his children. So they have five, uh, five children, uh, uh, he and his wife, Kathy. They have five children. And so part of his life is, and, and you know, exposing, it was exposure to, uh, for the kids to travel a little bit with him to some of these strange places in Asia and in Africa. And so part of his life story is that he started taking his daughters with him to Asia and especially to China because they were doing a lot of ministry in China. And his daughters, they're just like my wife, they love little babies. And so they would always pick up babies like on the street and in the orphanages and, and uh, in the churches. They would always love it. And they would always come to Dell and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we took one of these babies with us? 
So um, as a good father, he always kind of dismissed it because you can't just take babies with you. Um, there's actually a whole process of adoption if you want to do that. But his life and his family story is that after, after some time and a couple of trips, one of his daughters actually talked to another daughter and then they talked to the mother and they all came as kind of the woman force to him and told him, Dad, we feel like we should adopt a child from China. Now, that sounds nice and a good Christian thing to do an adoption, but let me just tell you the honesty that Daryl has shared with me. For him, this was like totally out of the question. They've had five children, and he was so looking forward to all of them moving out of the house and him being an empty nester, enjoying some time with his wife, traveling together. Never ever are we going to adopt a little child. Well, the story goes that I, I, I'm not sure on how many months and even say um, perhaps even a year. He was fighting innerly whether the, he and they as a family should do that. And to make a long story short, I've just been with, with him like a month ago. All his children have moved out. But there are four Chinese kids and all of them are handicapped, like fully handicapped. The one that I always play with, his name is Charlie. Charlie doesn't have any legs. Last time I was there a month ago, Lily, she had to do a nose surgery. She's had like 25 surgeries, plastic surgeries of all kinds of deformations. The third one is in a wheelchair. Everything needs to be helped. As he shares the story of how they as a family went into this phase, and so here's a, like from a, from a six-year-old to like a 38 or something year old is part of the family. It's just him and his wife now at home with these four handicapped Chinese kids. The way he tells the story is, Chris, it was the biggest spiritual battle for me as a man, as a father, as a Christian to kind of open myself up and say, God, if that's what you want to do, then that's what we'll do. And it has dramatically changed their life. Actually, when the last time I heard him share the story, he, he actually says it this way. We did not save these kids. These kids actually saved us. Because it has done something to his spirit. He will tell you very openly that he was way too selfish. He was way too much in his own ways. And only because he allowed God to mess with him. That he, that he experienced a deeper relationship with Jesus by adopting some kids from China. Number four, and I will wrap this up very soon, many Christians never get there.
the, one of the best ways I've heard this whole theology illustrated is picture someone driving his car to the countryside, happily driving, and all of a sudden you see a man by the side who would like to join you in your drive. How do you, how do you call them in English? Hitchhikers. A hitchhiker. So let's just in our imaginary picture, let's just picture that this hitchhiker is Jesus. You're taking a drive through the countryside, it's nice, or it's not nice, it's rough, it's raining, whatever. Jesus is there. And some people just keep driving, they let Jesus by the side and they just continue with their own ways and just leave Jesus by the side. Then there are some who actually stop. They stop their car, they stop their journey, they stop their life, and they actually start talking with Jesus. And after a short conversation or a long conversation, they invite him to join them in the car. So Jesus gets in the car and they start driving together. So he's in. He's, they're journeying together. But then there's a whole different play at hand of just having someone as a co-passenger and handing someone the steering wheel. I've met many Christians who've invited Jesus into their life, so he's part of their life. They're traveling together. And from time to time, they actually have some conversations with Jesus because Jesus is somewhere on the back seat and they're having a little chit-chat and just asking a little bit about that, which is great. It's great to have Jesus on board. But it's a whole other thing to actually stop your car once again, get out of your driver's seat, open up the door and invite Jesus to leave the car and take a seat in the front driver's seat and start driving himself and you go around the car and you sit on the driver's seat on the on the passenger seat the first decision is all about getting jesus on board the second decision is all about handing him the steering wheel of your life let me just tell you as i've been a christian for a long time, by now, at least in my perspective, I can see the difference. I can see the difference in people's lives. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. I'm not saying that as someone who's perfectly mastered all the theology and all the theological stuff. I'm just saying that I, have, I, I, I can sense in my spirit if someone really hasn't just made Jesus his savior, but really has said, Lord, you're the Lord, I'm not. You take over my life. I want to follow you, you not follow me. Let me close with the last point. Authority and power is available for all of us. So, there's this conversation, John 21, and I encourage you to just read this chapter all by yourself and just kind of look through the dynamics. 
there's this crucial conversation where Jesus tells him, hey, come follow me. And he lays it all out, what that means, the cost of discipleship. And then only one page later, at least here in my Bible, we've got the book of Acts and Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Do you guys know who's the big hero in Acts chapter 2? The big day of Pentecost is happening. God is opening up the doors of heaven. He's pouring out his spirit. Everyone has been afraid. Everyone's been running away. Then all of a sudden the spirit enters as Jesus has just ascended to heaven. That's what's happening in chapter 1. The spirit comes down and then there's this one guy who gets up in front of the big crowd where he just moments ago, days ago, denied Jesus, ran away, went fishing. He stands in front of the big crowd and says, Jesus is the Lord. He is the one that you guys crucified, but let me tell you, you may crucify him, but he's not dead. He's alive and his spirit is alive in us. And I am here to testify that. You know who's preaching that sermon? You know who's standing there in front of the big crowd and he's all excited and nothing can stop this guy? It's Peter. It's Peter the Rock. He's been, he's been lifted free. He's been set free in a whole different dimension. We see great stories in, in, in the gospel stories on what Peter does. And he's, he's always been a, a good and eager kind of guy. He's always been a leader. But there's a whole different dynamic once he's entered into this new phase after the second decision to really be all in with Jesus. Read the book of Acts. There are miracles happening. He's moving out. He's not perfect. Peter still messes things up. So I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about some saints walking on earth. I'm just saying that there are some, there's a way for us in our Christian walk to go deeper all in with Jesus that can totally change our game and our walk. And there's just a huge difference between Christians who've done that, who've entered that game, and Christians who haven't done that. So I'm not speaking about salvation today. I'm not speaking about whether you go to heaven. If you've accepted Jesus, fine, you'll go to heaven. I'm not talking about heaven now. I'm talking about authority and power here on this earth in this very moment. And it's not just for the preachers. It's not just for those who can speak nicely in front of big crowds. I think it's the calling of every one of us who've started walking with Jesus. At the beginning, we did not know who he is. Then we learn a little bit about him. We experience some stuff with him. But then there comes this crucial moment where Jesus takes us by the side and says, let's have breakfast together, you and me. Let's have a conversation. And then I'll ask you once again, do you want to follow me? Do you really want to be a follower? And are you willing to pay the price? The cost of discipleship is to give up your own life 100%. You may die, you will die. Are you in or are you not in? And once you've done that, you've got a different kind of authority and a different kind of spiritual power. And let me just say that. I am a little bit tired of watching some Christians have very lame lives, of not having the spirit really inhabit them and being set free from fear and anxiety and, and they're always worrying and they're always more playing the safe game. I believe so, so firmly from the gospel stories and the book of Acts that we are called to live a life of adventure and power and authority here on this side of eternity. Not just once we enter the heavenly gates, 
but on this side of eternity. But what it takes is a very crucial decision, just like becoming Jesus is like a life and death decision. Following Jesus, becoming a Christian is a life and death decision. At some point in your life, as a Christian, you need to hit that question all over again. I think we should sing a song. I think we should sing a song. I, I, I want to encourage you guys all. And I hope you take it from someone who's also struggling in his path and who's also trying to live this out. It's not like every day I feel powerful. It's not like every day I feel like I get it all. I understand it all. I'm fully, um, I'm fully present. But I know that there's a difference between a life of the Spirit, a life in the Spirit, and not a life in the Spirit. And there are lots of epistles in the New Testament. I can take you to the passages where actually Paul explains that very nicely theologically. If you want more theology, I can give you more theology on that. There's a difference of the life of the Spirit and not a life of the Spirit. And I'm not talking about freaky, crazy things. That's not me. I'm talking about being infilled by the Holy Spirit on a different level and living with authority and power. So where is Jesus in your life? Is he in the back seat? Is he in the passenger seat? Or have you even put him in the trunk? I know some Christians who put Jesus in the trunk. Okay, so he's, he's with him, but he's in the trunk. And he, they, they kind of said, you, you're not talking anymore here. I'm inviting you today, all of us today, to really consider where are we in our walk? And perhaps we stop our car, we climb outside and say, Jesus, now it's time for you to take this thing. I've been bumping left and right with my car. I've been crashing it up and down. I, I've been messing things up. I think it's about time that you take over. I hand you the steering wheel and now you start driving.